I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So we'll be continuing our series for our further campaign. It's a warning as I preach this morning on prayer. I feel a little bit like the first day on the squad of sports team. Or I know some things, but I, I, I am, I'm the new guy to this. Some of you who have been praying for decades would be much better suited to teach us about prayer. We're reading the whole chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the Word of God. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed." as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also." Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among you and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe that your Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. May his work open us to be receptive, to know from your word what you would have us to know, to feel from your truth what you would have us to feel, to respond as you would have us respond that we might glorify you by becoming more and more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, that prayer works. But I want to ask you, does prayer work? And before you're too quick to answer, think about something you prayed for recently. Has it been fulfilled? And if the answer is no, then is the answer to the question, prayer works also no. I remember when I was in college, uh, I, I had some deep affection for this young woman, and I prayed desperately that we would have a relationship and a long and flourishing one. And I'm not going to tell you what her name was because it was not Elizabeth. <laughs> did, God's pr- did my prayer to God not work? Or in that prayer, was God working something better for me as I prayed that prayer again as Elizabeth and I started our relationship and it was answered? Does prayer work? You may have noticed as we read this chapter, the word prayer does not appear here. Why are we talking about prayer as Paul is talking about all these hardships and this this union of God with his people? It's because I think too often we view prayer in a mechanical sense. If, If I pray the right way or earnestly enough or enough times, then God will answer it. And, and I will get the thing that I want or the thing that I need. But I think uh, more often, I would even venture to say most often, prayer does not work for us so much as it works in us. Prayer works in us, works on us to form us into the image of Jesus and to make us as Christ is as God wants us to be. So we're going to look today at prayer, its purpose and its power, and what it means to practice that. The purpose of prayer. What is prayer for? Another way to ask this question would be, what, what is it that we need? Because with prayer, often we are, we are trying to, to get something. We, are trying, we, we have a desire, and we want that desire to be filled. And, and many times, what we're praying for is good. We want health. We want safety. We want our children to grow and to know the Lord or to return to know the Lord if they've departed. We want that illness to be cured. We want that relationship to be healed. And these are all good things, but oftentimes we base our our understanding of God's goodness and faithfulness on how those prayers are answered. We don't necessarily know what it is we need, and so we go about all kinds of different ways. If we can just pray the right way or do the right thing, this will happen. My children the other night were arguing over a Target Christmas catalog. In the age of the internet, the retailers have realized you're not going to request a catalog. So they just, anyone who has bought something uh, for children, just, they just send you a catalog around Christmas time. My kids were arguing about who gets to read this catalog at night. And by read, they mean go through and say, I want this, I want this, I want this. They didn't know what they needed. They weren't even necessarily arguing about what they needed. They were arguing about the thing that would tell them what they need. 
What is it here that Paul thinks that he needs? What is it that Paul lifts up and values here in this passage? He, he starts off this, this middle section by saying that, that no fault may be found in our ministry. And in a culture of shame and fault-finding and mockery, how beautiful would it be to do something without fault? No fault may be found with our ministry. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He's not being prideful here. He's saying, in my role as a servant, I deserve commendation, not because of my own abilities or righteousness, because of what God is working in and through me and my co-ministers. What are these things that God is working? What are these things that, that Paul thinks he needs. Let's look at the list. Starting in verse 4, great endurance. Okay, great endurance. I'll take that. That's a good thing. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, and prison. Okay, Paul, you're losing me a little bit here. Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And if you, you look at the ministry of Paul, all of these, he's not just pulling out examples randomly. These are all things that he either witnessed or endured himself. In jail, punishment, shipwrecked. But then he goes on. By purity, he understands that, that as a follower of Christ and a minister, someone who's doing the work of God, he should be pure. By knowledge, this is not the knowledge that puffs up that he talks about elsewhere, but a deep relational knowledge of who God is and that he is in covenant with me. Patience. I think we can, we can agree with Paul on that one. We could all use more patience and kindness. Not just us, but I think the world we live in, you can look around and say we need kindness, and the Holy Spirit. I know we're Presbyterian. We don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit that much, but we need the Holy Spirit. And this is not something you can't, you can't achieve or earn the Holy Spirit. He is solely a gift of God. We need genuine love. Genuine love. Elsewhere, Paul says that love is the greatest of faith and hope and love. And it remains. But we need genuine love. How often is our love not actually love? It's just being really nice to each other. Do we have a nice problem where we treat each other nice, we say, how are you on Sunday morning, but we don't have any connection or, or sacrifice or, or genuine affection for those that we claim to love? And he says, by truthful speech... In an age of lies, of fake news, of all kinds of, of people saying all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons, truthful speech is definitely something that we need. And the power of God. I don't have to tell you how often we don't have what it takes. But the power of God, that is something we need. 
with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You can look at Ephesians 6 if you want to know some of these weapons he's talking about. But he says the right hand and the left hand. He's talking about offensive and defensive weapons for working God's ministry. And then he, he goes into some conditions that we need, some, some situations, some, some circumstances that, that he thinks are worthy of commendation through honor and dishonor. Just read the book of Acts and see the times that Paul was dishonored. Through slander and praise, he says we are treated as impostors. How many times did someone say of Paul or say of, 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 of the apostles, you're a fraud, you are, you are peddling lies, and yet, he says, we are true. He's not looking to what others say, but he's looking to the Lord who says, we are true. As unknown, what he means there is like, this is just a nobody. I, who is this Paul guy just showing up and preaching about this, this Jesus guy who he says raised from the dead? Like that's, we're unknown. And yet, to the one who it is most important to be known, Paul is well known. As dying, and behold, I love that. He's like, we're dying. Wait, not dying, we live. All of us are are making the march towards death. I don't mean to be macabre about it, but there's the principle. The monks in, in, the, in the early church would leave a skull on their desk to remember that death was coming. And this isn't like a, they crafted a skull. This is like Brother Titus's skull who died last year is on my desk to remember that we are heading towards death. But, Paul says, behold, we live. In a much more profound, real sense, we are truly alive as punished and yet not killed. How many times did Paul receive the 40 lashes minus one? Yet God protected him as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We of all people know that the world is not how it should be. I know some of you and what you're going through, but I don't have to know each one of you to know that there are things in your life that are worth mourning about. But we mourn not as those who have no hope, as Paul says in First Thessalonians, but as those who have hope and rejoice in the life of the world to come. He says, as poor, yet making many rich, following after Jesus, as he's going to say just a few chapters later, who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What we need is to have nothing, but, Paul says, possessing everything, knowing that the riches and the glory that are stored up for us in Christ Jesus are more than anything we could hope to attain in this life. Even as Jesus himself says, no one who has left all these things in this life will not receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. These are the kinds of things that Paul thinks that he needs. And you notice that, that none of these are a, a victorious he has achieved and overcome. It's all an endurance I have suffered, but I've borne up underneath it. And he caps it all off by this appeal to the Corinthians 
with his, his heart wide open, showing them that the, the capstone of all of this that he thinks he needs is this open-hearted love. For some reason, we don't know exactly why the Corinthians weren't, weren't exactly re- receptive to Paul and his co-ministers, but he says, I am opening my heart in vulnerability and compassion to you. Will you please do the same to me? He says, I speak to you, children, not in a, in a condescending way, but as my children whom I love, will you love in return? All of these things are what it means, are what we need to be ambassadors of God, as Paul talked about in the last chapter. These are the kinds of qualities, these are the, the kinds of circumstances that Paul thinks are ideal, are worthy of condemnation, are without fault. And if you finish this list and you think, I'm not sure I want that, or how would I even go about getting to that point, then you're understanding what prayer is about. Prayer is not about the life that we want. Prayer is about the life that God wants for us. Prayer is not about the life that we want, but the life that God wants for us. The purpose of prayer is to form us, to make us into who He wants us to be by reflecting Him and who He is and relying on Him and who He is and what He has done for us and the grace that He shows towards us. So if that's what prayer is for, then, then what does prayer actually do? How does, does prayer form us into this Christ-likeness? We can see in this passage that it, it does so through our connection to Him. We are God's, and He is ours, and, and He is for us. All these hardships that Paul talks about, all these things that are worthy of condemnation but are none, nonetheless enduring things, suffering things, are, are borne out in the context of relationship with God for our benefit. And so he has this warning, and it can seem kind of, kind of out of left field to, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, this warning against a, a marriage between Christians and non-Christians but it's couched in this larger discussion of the connection of of God to his people and what it means to to not engage with God and other things, to do what, what is called syncretism between idolatry and Christianity, but to look to the Lord and the Lord alone. That's why he goes through all these different comparisons, righteousness versus lawlessness, light versus darkness, Christ versus Belial, which most scholars think is a reference to Satan, believer with unbeliever, the temple of God with idols. This, is, this quote is from a bunch of different Old Testament passages, but that, that quote, to touch no unclean thing, is in the context of the Israelites leaving Babylon. And he's saying, don't take any idols with you. As I'm bringing you out of exile, don't, don't depend on anything else besides me for what you want and what you need because God is with you. See, God cares deeply about the things that we want, but he wants us to go about seeking the life that we want in him and through him. 
And he, he knows ultimately that what we need is him because we were created for him, to look to him, to trust in him. And so this section here, these verses are, are asking the question, what, what do you really think is going to get you what you want? Where is your hope really? Is it in the Lord or is it in these other idols, these other means. The deeper point here, though, is that we are the temple of the living God. And this is how prayer works. This is what prayer does, is it reflects our connection to Him. This phrase, they will be my people and I will be their God. These, these verses here that in your Bible are probably set out as a quote, it's not pulling from one Old Testament passage. He's quoting, scholars debate this because it's just all over the place. We think at least six different Old Testament passages Paul is pulling from and connecting. And notice he doesn't say, the prophet says this and the other prophet says this. He says, as God said, all of this. He's pointing to this, this truth that God has always been with his people. And this motif of his presence with his people stretches throughout the whole of Scripture. It begins in the Garden of Eden, where it says that he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He walked with them, just next to them. And we see the fall that, that tore that down, but there's these little hints along the way as God appears to different people. He wrestles with Israel. He appears as a burning bush, but then as he rescues his people, if you're going through Exodus and our discipleship program, he rescues his people, and it doesn't say he, he shows up, rescues them, and he just sends them away. He goes with them as a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. And then he gives them instructions for how to build a place where he can reside with them and go where they go in the tabernacle that can be picked up and put down and picked up and put down and picked up and put down. As they go from place to place to place, he goes with them. And as they come to the promised land, he says, now take that template and build me a temple that I can be with my people in the heart of where they live. And again and again, they reject that proposition, and the temple is destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt until Jesus comes, who is called God with us, who wants to get so close to humanity that he takes on humanity himself and not shows up as a man, but shows up as a baby and lives throughout humanity and then as he is, is died, is, is murdered, dies for his people that he loves so much, and has resurrected and ascends, and it looks like God left, but no, he sends his spirit, his helper, to be with his church even to this day. God is with his people. He is near to us, and this is how prayer works by forming us around his presence and in his presence to follow after him. See, sometimes we think of prayer as a tool. Like, my dad gave me this hammer. It's a really good hammer. It can, it can really take care of a nail or knock something down. It's powerful. There's, there's, this can do things. 
When more often, prayer is like one of those little plastic tools you give a child, <laughs> like a little saw that's like made out of plastic and it's dull and it's not going to cut anything. But what it does is it reflects the connection of the father to the child. I want to be like dad, and he's working with these tools. And the tool's not going to cut anything, but the dad can tell, oh, he wants to cut that. And maybe, maybe I will cut that because he has asked to. It reflects and it forms us, and that child grows more and more to understand what it is about to be like his father. A prayer is not a mechanism to reach our goals. Insert enough coins in the vending machine and you'll get what you want. It's, it's organic and it's spiritual and it, it, it reaches God's purposes in us. It does not work for us but it works on us by our connection to God, through our connection to God, in our connection to God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses our prayers to draw us closer to him and to make us more like his son. I've heard it said that fellowship with God is not a means to an end, but an end of itself. And that, that we should be going about this to drink of it daily and eternally. That's what prayer is, to fellowship with God and to drink of it daily and eternally. A declaration that God is God and God is good and he is ours and we are his. Repeatedly drawing this out and, and asking for things, yes, but based on that truth that God is ours and we are his and he is doing something in us and through us. And so this idea of God's presence is the ultimate answer to whatever prayer you have prayed, be it for health, be it for conflict, for success. What we need most is God with us. Like a child who skins their knee and runs to mom to be picked up. Mom's presence is not going to fix the skin knee, but what the kid needs is that connection with God. He has both the power to fix us, but what we need is Him. So what does this look like? If this is what prayer is about, then how then should we pray? Right at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says this, working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is, the, this is the whole thing that Paul has been talking about, this working together. Paul uses ministry more times in this book than he does in any other book that he wrote, any other letter that he wrote. He uses the word ministry here in 2 Corinthians. He's trying to get to them. What does it mean to participate in what God is doing? It means humbly, constantly, expectantly, faithfully petitioning God because we recognize we can't do this on our own. Even Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, how often did he pray? How often did he commune with his Father? Paul doesn't want us to receive the grace of God in vain, which would look like saying, yeah, yeah, I got that grace, but I kind of deserved it. And, and now that I have it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle it from here. But to receive that grace, knowing that not only did we not deserve it, not only do, could we not attain it, but we can't sustain it now that we have it. 
to look at what Jesus did coming from heaven, giving up his riches for our sake, and suffering, not just on the cross, but for 33 years before that, suffering amongst sin and difficulty, and then dying for our sake, to look at that and the resurrection that he gives us, a new life that comes through him, and saying, that is what I need. That is what it means to receive the grace of God in vain. And then Paul quotes this section from Isaiah 49. We read the larger context of God's servant and the suffering that he's going to endure that's going to bring restoration to God's people. And Paul says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. What he's saying is that this prophecy is now at least partially being fulfilled in you, Corinthians. By extension, that prophecy is being fulfilled in you, sitting here in this room in Hampton, Virginia, in 2023. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that now is the time where God is here to work in you, to transform you, to work through you for His glory? If I had to sum up how then we should pray, I would do it. I heard this from someone recently. Said, What does it look like to pray after you've prayed for everything? After you've finished your list of things to pray for, what does it look to pray look like to pray then? As we're in the midst of this capital campaign. If we're viewing prayer purely mechanically, we'd say, okay, we're praying for $666,000, just ignore that number, and we are trying to get to that number, and we're going to pray for that, and we're going to pray for that, and we're going to pray for that, and if we don't get $666,000, well, then prayer just didn't really work. But if we're looking at prayer as formation, as God shaping us, all of us, in His mission, in His work to unite us together, that we are all pursuing what He would have us pursue— and we're, we're praying, hoping for that, and expecting that, then God can do a mighty work. We've said it over and over again. If we don't raise a dime, but we come together, and we understand what it means to sit under the grace of God and look to Him to change us, then this campaign will be a success. And that's why we're asking everyone to pray, Lord, what would you do through me to accomplish your vision for your, our church? Help me discern a sacrifice for our campaign that is meaningful and joyful. Because it's not about the number. It is about God forming us to recognize who he is, recognize our connection to him, and to lean on him, and to look to him, and to trust him to do what he wants to do in us. So prayer, a lot of times, looks like gratitude. What would it look like for prayer to be not so much a conversation of, yeah, I'd like this to happen, this to happen, this to happen, but to, it to be like reminiscing with an old friend. Hey, you remember when we did that together and how that made me who I am today? Except with the Lord, say, God, do you remember when we went through that together and you made me the way that I am today? And a culture that is just geared towards self-sufficiency. Gratitude is radical. This idea of prayer as formation 
is, is very inclusive in the way that it draws people into ministry. You don't have to be a skilled orator. You don't have to know all the depths of Scripture. You don't even have to be able to speak in complete sentences to minister through prayer. But some of you, maybe you're sitting here and like, I'm on the later end of life. I can't really run around with the little kids. I'm, I'm not out there doing mulch. I'm not going to get up in front and speak. How can I minister? If you have been praying for decades, then God has been forming you. And one of the most beautiful, best ways you can minister is to invite someone to pray with you and for you and to, to teach them and help them to understand what you have learned only through years of practice as God has been working in you. And as we pray more and more, I think we will find that our prayers become more and more aligned with God's purposes. And the thing about God's purposes is they will never be thwarted. They will always come to pass. Even as Paul ends this section, ends this chapter here, as God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's a two-part promise there that, that I will be father to you. This deep covenantal family connection of affection and love and care. But also, who is it that says this? The Lord Almighty. The one who is almighty, who has all power. And so when we pray these things, we can look to him knowing that he will achieve his purposes and promises for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you, the Lord Almighty, who has promised to be a father to us, that we will be your sons and daughters that you will be our God and we will be your people, that you will make your dwelling with us and walk with us. Father, it's these truths that we lean on as we pray, as we pray for this campaign, that we would ask truly and expectantly what you would have us do for your ministry. As we pray for illness, for pain, for those who have walked away from you, for those who have come into conflict with us, for difficult job situations, for all kinds of pain, Father. We know that you are with us and that you are making us into what you would have us be. And so we pray these things, hoping for you to answer them in the way that we want, yes, but knowing that you will answer them in a way that makes us into what you would have us to be, that makes us more and more like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.